Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I'm joined by Chef Ian Walker. He's the executive chef over at 1808 American Bistro up in Delaware, Ohio, which is about 30 to 40 minutes north of downtown Columbus, just outside of the 270 Loop. It's right off the main kind of drag there in Delaware, a couple doors down from Cove, which is the restaurant that replaced Spec after Spec moved downtown. All these are Josh Dalton properties. So he has 1808 American Bistro Cove, Spec, which is now downtown, the Citizens Trust, Veritas, and then the forthcoming French Bistro restaurant, which will be in that same downtown neighborhood right off Gay Street there, Gay and High at that corner. They're currently renovating the building which seems like it's a bit extensive of a renovation if you look at it from the outside. 1808, if you've never been, it's worth the drive. It's not fine dining. It's, you know, a bistro. So it's a little bit more rustic, a little bit more casual. Uh, the food's still delicious as well. It's come a long way from its early days too as well. Just remember a few years ago, I would say like the food was probably a little bit more Cameron Mitchell restaurant-esque and it's definitely elevated and changed over time. And especially since Ian has joined and taking over the kitchen and the menu and everything. So they have certain staples that they always kind of have on there, but they do chef specials. Kind of get into all that, you know, him working in Columbus and throughout his career, how he wound up joining 1808, his methodology on putting stuff on a menu and how he kind of runs the kitchen and everything and participated in, you know, the local uh, chef scrap, which is over at Ray Ray's out in Granville. They do kind of like once a month kind of a chef head-to-head cooking competition thing. I think they've done maybe like four of those now uh, and did the first one. One. did the very inaugural one and, and one so we're just you know fans of the restaurant and wanted to have him on and chat about his career and everything too as well so it's a solid episode and it's always nice to kind of get a little bit different of a perspective from you know local chefs people have kind of been in, in ohio and columbus and everything how they came up through the industry and kind of what they're doing now and where they kind of see themselves headed and columbus headed as a whole too as a food scene so you can follow him on instagram it's at ian.walker.c there is another ian walker who works for a restaurant i believe it's out in vancouver published on maine i believe is where he's at just pay attention when you're looking for ian that it's you follow the right account you can also follow the restaurant at 1808 bistro and then also at bar underscore bistro is kind of like the bar account for 1808 too as well they do reservations on open table. They have a kid's menu. Kids are welcome there. There's kind of few and far between places where there are restaurants that have high quality food, but also you're able to bring kids to. I've encountered a lot of that recently with our son, just because there's only a handful of places that you could go that maybe you would really want to go and they're not, you know, a chain or anything like that. And they do food really well, but there's some places, you know, when they're littler that you can sneak them in, you know, we took them to commune a couple of times and whatnot, but once they get a little bit more vocal and are moving around a little bit more, you know, those kind of fall by the wayside for a little while until they get a, a reach a certain age where maybe you can kind of go back to some of those places too as well. Don't fault anybody for that or anything like that. It's just, you know, there's not a whole lot of, you know, delicious cuisine kind of restaurants that uh, accommodate kids. So that's a common theme. I feel like subconsciously that's come up over the past few episodes, you know, with John Howman, uh, Emmett's, which is another place you could take your kids to as well. And, and there's a few others too in there. So, you know, it just kind of changes your perspective and you kind of wind up looking at things that you never really paid attention to until you're kind of in that boat. You can also follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. We're on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, all that stuff. It's either Spoon Mob or Spoon Mob One on those platforms. Make sure to follow the podcast, whatever app you're using. Just click the follow or check mark, uh, subscribe button. I think everybody says follow now. I think they changed the lingo on that. Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, any Android player, we're all on 
all that stuff. You can find us there. We have a YouTube channel. You can subscribe to that too if you prefer to get your podcast through YouTube. They just come out a week later. Um, they hit the apps first, then a week later they go up on YouTube. Just different metric systems that don't connect or overlap. So that's why we kind of keep them separate and stagger them like that. Check out the website, spoonmob.com. You can write in questions, comments, feedback, view different chef profiles, sommelier profiles, restaurant industry hospitality profiles. We have them broken out up there. Most recent episode at the top, oldest episode at the bottom. And then we keep running updates for everybody as they kind of move around to different restaurants or open new concepts, things close or whatever. We keep it up to date. They get nominated for awards, stuff like that, James Beard Awards and whatnot. Um, as we have a few people that have been nominated for those things, even this year, you know, Josh Haber, BJ Lieberman. We're kind of the two. And then we might also have a few upcoming people that have been nominated this year too as well. So we'll see. We just pay attention to the feed. So that's why you want to subscribe and make sure that you're following the podcast. So all the new episodes just hit your feed uh, as they come out. But without any further delays, here's my conversation with Chef Ian Walker, the executive chef over at 1808 American Bistro in Delaware, Ohio. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of your Monday here. To chat, you're currently running the kitchen up at 1808 American Bistro, right? And it's a staple within the Josh Dalton kind of restaurant group there. His first restaurant. Uh, we've been there a couple times. It's always a little bit of a departure from, you know, the stuff that he does downtown and stuff, but it's still delicious food. And you've seen it progress over the years too. So kind of what it started out was probably mainly a kind of something almost Cameron Mitchell-y vibe, kind of with like the way the food was played and everything. And now it's progressively gotten more and more closer to what they're doing at Veritas and Spec and stuff like that. It's kind of in the same vein, I would say. So I want to talk about like how you wound up there and everything you got going on. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody. And for a lot of Columbus chefs, uh, there's not too, too much on their background, no matter how much research you do. So take me through your career. You know, how did you first kind of get started cooking? How did that all happen? I grew up in Granville, born in Columbus, but uh, Granville is like 45 minutes east of Columbus, Ohio. I started working in the Granville Inn, which is like the local restaurant out there. One of the only few out there, maybe a handful. And this was back in 2012, 2013. And I started washing dishes like most people do. I've told this story a million times and it sounds cheesy, but I just had a bad day. And uh, my chef at the time made me some like rice noodle soup. It was just like a clear broth with some green onions and it just turned my whole day around and it changed my outlook on the day, the days going forward. It was kind of like a superpower. And I was like, still kind of bouncing from job to job. I was still in high school, but I was like, you know what? Like, I want to do that. I want to be able to change someone's outlook by just, you know, giving them some nourishment of some sort. And uh, I decided I was going to commit to it, you know? And I had a lot of friends in the coming years not be able to decide what they wanted to do with their life. And uh, I just figured balls to the wall. Like, if you find something you enjoy, commit to it and do it. I, uh, started cooking full-time. I worked my way onto the hotline there, and I had a, a sous chef at the time then told me not to go to culinary school, so I decided to go to culinary school, just to spite him, probably. So I attended COTC. Uh, they have a culinary program out there in Newark, Ohio, while also going to Ohio State Newark branch campus. I uh, was pursuing a degree in culinary science simultaneously, lots of work in the kitchen, and then uh, at the Granville Inn for three years. And then once I was in my second year of college, I decided I needed to go to Columbus main campus for Ohio State. And I moved out to Columbus and quite a change of scenery being a small town boy growing up there, coming to Columbus. It's a larger city compared to my hometown. And I uh, got a job at the Guildhouse downtown with Cameron Mitchell. And that was really where um, I was introduced to even more new ideas. And it's always been a progression of new ideas. The Guildhouse at the time, this is 2015. The Guildhouse was, uh, you know, 
I would say they're one of the best restaurants in the city, or at least one of the more well-known ones. They're very aesthetically pleasing. I was super excited to, to get a job there. Uh, JP Yakabuchi, a good friend of mine, currently still works for Cameron Mitchell, I believe, but he was the head chef there at the time in 2015. And he um, gave me the opportunity to work on the line. And I remember telling him that I would clean his floors and scrub his vegetables just to have an opportunity to be there. And he laughed in my face and said he needed a line cook. So uh, he gave me the shot. I guess, I mean, it, it just keeps going from there. Um, so I worked there for four years and six months or something like that for Cameron Mitchell in general. But I worked at the Guildhouse for three and a half. They promoted me as sous chef there after a couple of years. Um, I got really close with everybody there. And, you know, the restaurant industry, it, you see people come and go and, you know, the longer you stay, the more you become a staple of their community, of the family that the restaurant has. And then COVID hit in, I mean, that must have been 2020, March 15th, 2020. I remember watching with the rest of my managerial staff um, on the television in the private dining room about COVID. Back then, nobody really had an idea of what was going on with that. We didn't know what was to come. It's like burned in my brain. We ended that there. And I remember closing that restaurant down and didn't have a job for a couple months. And then Kemmer Mitchell, luckily, they were pretty aggressive on reopening with all due respect. And they gave me somewhat of an ultimatum. They were like, look, like we can't keep you down here at the Guildhouse, but we do have an opportunity up here at the Avenue in Dublin. So that's their steakhouse up in Avenue, up in the uh, Dublin area. I was like, you know what? Like, I guess I can do that. So I, uh, I went up there and I worked there for another, another year and a half. I'm pretty bad at time, so forgive me with that. But it was definitely a year and a half, at least. I just reached a point in my career where I no longer felt like I was progressing forward. We'll give Cameron Mitchell credit. What they do is they do very well. They're very good at providing service and quality food consistently. I would say consistency is their key word in my mind, but I just didn't want to work at a steakhouse anymore. I, I was feeling frustrated with the lack of creativity, not to any fault of my head chef at the time. Uh, he definitely gave me the freedom to do so, but it was just, it's the corporate restaurant world of you don't really fix what's not broken. So working in other restaurants, you know, before that I wanted to like kind of change it up. So I made the leap and I decided I was going to move to Chicago. So I packed my bags and I, I moved out there with um, an ex-girlfriend of mine and we flew out there. I tried to convince her not to come with me uh, simply because I thought it was insane that, you know, a woman I had been dating for six months at that point would go out there with me. But luckily she loved food just as much as she loved me. So um, it worked out pretty well. Uh, we flew out there and I tried to show her everything I knew about Chicago at the time. We ate at uh, plenty of places. We dined at Smith with uh, Jonathan Shields. We di uh, dined at uh, Next. We ate at Boca as well. Um, Boca was our last stop on this like three-day adventure of um, Michelin restaurants. We had a really wonderful dinner at Boca. We did the tasting menu. We just kind of decided that we're going to do it. We're going to pull the trigger. Uh, so we flew back and uh, we put our two weeks notice in together. And then from there, it, you know, time passed and we needed a job. So we once again flew out to Chicago. I had seen that Boca was um, hiring. So we applied and we both got the job. We staged for one day and celebrated, moved back. And then two weeks later, we packed everything we owned and moved out there. And Chicago, I mean, obviously changed my life. I was out there for a year plus. I mean, I've met so many wonderful people out in Chicago. Like the difference in food from Chicago, from Columbus to Granville, Ohio, it's just, it's just baffling. And they each have their own quality and style of food that belongs in each, you know, level of like population of each city and town. So to compare Chicago to Granville or Columbus to Granville or Chicago, it's, it doesn't make sense to me, but I learned so much different, so many different styles in Chicago. Um, I met so many wonderful people, but alas, I could not afford to live there. And that's another gripe I have with the industry, but I guess we can get into that a little bit later. Yeah. So I decided that, you know, I can't stay here financially and um, my ex was missing, you know, nature and family and hometown. So 
uh, we came back here and I needed a job and I saw on Indeed um, that, you know, Mr. Josh Dalton had an open position for an executive chef at 1808. And I decided like, well, you know, I've known Josh Dalton. He has a reputation that precedes him. If there's anybody that would be willing to work for in the city of Columbus, it would be him. Um, I didn't want to return to Cameron Mitchell just because, you know, I've been there, I've done that. And I just wasn't really interested. So I applied, I drove out here, I sat down and interviewed with Josh and we agreed that I would get the position and it all moved so fast. And then, you know, I guess like two or three weeks later, it was like right after um, New Year's Eve, I came back out here and it's been a year uh, and three months since my return to Columbus. And, and here I am sitting down interviewing with you. To go back and kind of fill in some details here, you played lacrosse in high school, right? I did. Yeah, actually. Funny you mentioned that. I just joined a men's lacrosse league uh, and I played yesterday. Is lacrosse as physical, more physical, more difficult than football? You know, I think lacrosse is... Um, just as physical as football is, I think lacrosse takes more stamina. Imagine blending football and soccer. You have the physical contact that soccer does not. You have the stamina that soccer does that football doesn't. And I just, I mean, I love the sport. I, I play goaltender though, so I'm not really the one running around. Um, I'm mostly just a psychopath who gets balls thrown at him like 100 miles an hour. But but I love the sport and I play with my, uh, my brother and a good friend of mine. So I, it's just something I need for my soul. How'd you wind up being the goaltender? Because usually that's like, when you're starting out, it's kind of like, uh, so like rotation, like somebody volunteers or whatever, but really good question. So growing up, I really loved peanut butter and I ate a lot of peanut butter. And I think that's how I became like somewhat of a fat kid. You know, I was deciding like what sport to play and, uh, we chose lacrosse, but I didn't want to run so much because if you've ever seen a midfielder in lacrosse, they run just as much as a soccer player does. That cardio is just insane. So decided I didn't want to run. And that was just like, you know, dead stop. That was the decision. You know, whatever came after that was better than having to run all over the place. And that was just standing in goal. And when you're, you know, that young, you don't really realize what you're signing up for. I love the position. It's great. It takes a lot of finesse. And it's also just as much athletic as any other position on the field. I think people don't realize that. So when you decide to go to culinary school, you know, you stay local there. Was that on purpose? Did you just want to see if culinary school kind of like made sense and just did the local one instead of going to Chicago or Pittsburgh, New York, even other ones in Columbus, you know, Columbus State, or I think at the time, maybe the Bradford was still around. I worked with a guy who his name's Jacob Fishinger, but we called him Fish. He went to the Bradford. He recommended against it, if I remember correctly. I believe the Bradford's no longer an institution. Respectfully, I've heard mixed reviews about the Bradford, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. So at the time, I was like, I decided I didn't want to go to Bradford, and I didn't really have a lot of money. Um, you know, despite what it sounds like growing up in Granville and playing lacrosse, I was not a rich kid. My parents were well off enough to afford to, you know, pay their mortgage and, and to put us into school, but that was it. So I was paying my way through college while I was working. So I didn't really have a lot of money to, did I dream of going to the CIA? Absolutely. My God. I remember looking at their like third year course of like, you know, thermodynamics and heat distribution. And I was like, that's so, that's so fucking cool. But I never got to go there. I just simply couldn't afford to. At the time I was living at home still. So it made sense to go to somewhere that I could drive, you know, within 10 miles. It was just affordable. And I wouldn't say like the CUTC, their culinary program at the time was like had any great reputation, but it wasn't a bad one. I do want to give a shout out to Matthew Rousseau, who was my culinary instructor. That guy, uh, I mean, for what it's worth, he did a really good job. He definitely took a lot of students who had no passion or interest in being there, which always confused me. And he did at least educate them to some degree. But I found culinary school to be quite interesting because you, you have a mix of people from all walks of life and stages of life. You know, there were a couple of people who were like, they're older gentlemen who like, I wasn't really sure what they were going to do once they graduated. Like when you're 65, like, are you going to go be a line cook? 
you know, I don't really know. Like, are you going to be a private chef at home or are you going to like, I'm not sure what their plan was, but I was curious. And then, you know, you had other people who just simply wouldn't show up to class. And this was like one of the first times in my life that I, I really wanted to be in class every day and learn. I was certainly the teacher's pet and not even trying. So I was just like so excited to learn about literally anything and everything they had to say. So yeah, culinary school is interesting, but I guess I chose that just simply because it was local and um, affordable. Based on your experience, someone in your kitchen now comes up to you, says, hey, you know, I want to open my own restaurant one day. Should I go to culinary school? What would you tell them? Those are two doozies of a question in one. I had this question asked to me more times than I can believe. And I was actually just talking about this last night. My answer is, it depends. Can you afford to? Do you have the time? But ultimately, I believe, from my personal experience, a culinary school degree is equivalent to any other college degree you can receive. It's If you can't apply the education that you receive, then what is the point of going to, to receive such education? I've worked with people who have gone to culinary school and they're not able to apply what they were taught in a real life application. You know, just because you know how to brunoise or you can tourner or, or whatever, doesn't mean that, you know, you're actually going to do that in real life. And it doesn't mean that you understand the way or the pace that a kitchen works at for an actual profitable business. I guess my answer to someone asking that would be like, yeah, of course, like if you can afford to go, but if you held a gun to my head, I would say it'd be better to find a good restaurant to work in. Uh, save your money, ask a bunch of questions. You can be a student of life at a more affordable price than you can at a culinary institution. You're doing culinary school, but you're also doing stuff at Ohio State, you know, at the Newark kind of offshoot branch and then eventually, you know, main campus. So what was your mindset there? Because obviously it sounds like you're really into culinary school, learning, continuing to pursue that career, but you also had this other stuff on the side that you were doing. The Granville High School I went to, we had um, these guidance counselors, and they were certainly um, dead set on sending every single kid to a university. You know, they are, it's just, a, it's a pipeline into the upper education of America. And um, so they would just, you know, beat that into your head that you had to go to a higher, you know, system of education, and that a trade would never even be remotely considered. I kind of like, didn't understand that. I was convinced that I needed to go and attend a university by family and friends and, you know, people who I looked up to. I also didn't think it would be a bad idea to have a, a degree to, you know, have like a fallback or something like that going forward. If I ever wanted to work in like, you know, Abbott Labs or some kind of like food processing of some sort. But ultimately, uh, I did not finish my degree at Ohio State. It's just certainly not affordable uh, unless, I don't know, at least in my perspective from my life. But yeah, I guess I just felt that pressure to like, you know, you got to have a college degree. You have to, you know, I graduated culinary school, but I didn't finish Ohio State. And I don't know. It was just like the moment in my life where people were telling me that you have to do this, you have to do that. And um, I think that was a change in my person and my my mind that I had one day I just realized like I don't I don't have to necessarily do this. You know, I'm succeeding in the kitchen, which is really what I truly want to do anyway. I'm succeeding in in cooking and I don't necessarily want to, nor can I afford to continue to pay, you know. X number of thousands of dollars a semester to do the thing that I don't necessarily know if I want to do. You make an adult decision, a young adult decision, but you make a decision to no longer continue. And um, I think there are a lot of people out there who have dropped out of college and it's like they're embarrassed to talk about it. But honestly, it's something I think that is more frequent than people imagine. And in, in this case, in my career and my trade, I don't necessarily need a college degree to succeed. But I do think it was beneficial to attend university simply because it puts you in that student mindset going forward with my career. You know, you have to give the time to educate yourself, to read, to learn. The only person responsible for your own education is yourself. So I would say that was the one beneficial thing about attending Ohio State was giving me the tools to teach myself going forward. 
you kind of touched on all the points with kind of the problems facing the education system these days. How valuable is it and expense and all that stuff? That's one reason why I always ask that question to people is just because I'm always curious as to what their thoughts are, because you can see it from kind of both sides. I think it's getting to a point where it's more if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or something, yes, go college or whatever. But there's also this whole other world of trades that now there's, you know, employment voids and everything in that that we need people for. So I think it's becoming a very interesting debate back and forth. So we'll see kind of kind of where it goes. But so you wind up, you know, like you mentioned, getting in at the guild house, right? Which is probably around that time, 2015, there's not a lot of stuff really happening in Columbus. That's probably like the early point of where the food scene starts to kind of uptick. You have probably a handful of restaurants. Veritas wasn't open, or if it was, it was up in Delaware. Different stuff, and a lot of stuff didn't come online yet. So when you wind up there at the Guildhouse, you specifically wanted to work there, right? Like that was a place like on your kind of shortlist. You know, one of the few restaurants I knew about in Columbus, I had fallen in love with the aesthetics of it. The food was creative at the time. It just seemed like the right transition to getting into the Columbus food scene. And yeah, I just, I mean, I applied. I remember driving from Granville to Columbus and I wore my best shirt and I walked in with my resume and I was so like uptight at the time, but I was also nervous. And I think it shows that I took it very seriously. And I think that's something that the head chef at the time also noticed. And you don't get a lot of those kids anymore that are like really, really serious about making it like their career. They just kind of like fall into it. There are still people out there who who want to do it like that. But yeah, I was just enamored with the the aesthetics really of the Guildhouse and the location was close to the university and it just made sense to me at the time. I know Rigsby's was, I think Rigsby's was still around just down the street, but I think that was like coming close to like the last couple of years, if not mistaken. Yeah, the Guildhouse just had a draw to me. And like I said, I just kind of like, I found one thing. I set my mind on it and I, I did it. So what was like the hardest challenge with being in that environment? Because for those that don't know, and we've had Matt Walton on previously, who was the executive chef at the Guildhouse for a time, but you're doing the restaurant, there's the bar in the hotel next door, you're doing the room service, then there's, you know, the private events and catering and all that stuff. So what is the biggest challenge for you, even with starting out at a place at the Granville Inn, where you do have some of those elements too as well, but how hard is that to like get up to speed with doing all those things? Well, first off, yeah. Shout out to Matt Walton. He's definitely helped me learn throughout the years. And I want to give credit to him when credit is due. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the Granville Inn in contrast to the Guildhouse. I never thought about it until just now, but we also had a banquet program at the Granville Inn. The comparison is quite uncanny, but we didn't do such volume at the Granville Inn as we did at the Guildhouse. And I would say the volume and the hours were probably the most difficult thing. It's just that hotel and the contract with the hotel, God bless them. The people that worked there were wonderful, but like the room service during like a Saturday night shift. And it's like, you know, you get these people in the hotel, the Limeridian or the Joseph, and they're just a pain in your ass. They want this and this and this. And it's not like, you know, I'm, I'll talk about this later, but like with like requests and like modifications, I don't have a problem with that. Like, that's fine. But these people were like the just, you know, imagine like, Paris Hilton, but like in different variations. It's just like, you know, they want like every single little thing and they want it fucking now. And it's like, we can't do that. It's like eight o'clock and we're getting our ass kicked and they just wouldn't understand. So, you know, the hotel and rightfully so would be like putting pressure on us to like improve that. 
And we're like, look, like we're trying our best to operate two businesses at once here. And then there was like the language barrier with a lot of the guys in the kitchen, which I welcomed with open arms. I actually kind of fell in love with that. But, you know, you had the language barrier with like trying to explain like what was expected with like, you know, a lot of these Hispanic men versus like, you know, what they're understanding. You know, they have different priorities of like, you know, their job is the guild house and the guild house only. It was a lot to manage. Um, and every head chef that's ever been through the guild house, I have the utmost respect for. Um, it's certainly a high quality and a high volume kitchen. And then on top of that, the banqueting was um, just insane. When I was there for the, the years I was there, Mary Lou Atwood, wherever you are, Mary Lou, God bless you. I hope you're doing all right. But that woman, she could tackle it all. She handled everything. Um, she was the most organized and like just strict chef I've ever been under. And you have to be when you're doing, you know, parties of 150 for a bat mitzvah. And then you have a party of 50 for like a nightcap closing it off on a Wednesday. And then, you know, she turns that into the next day. She has a party of like 200 in like the banquet hall. And, you know, she's doing that like five days a week, every week. And like, you know, she made so much money for that restaurant and the business in general. Um, but I could see the toll that it took on her. That's something I never very much envied at all. I never, you know, I would always help Mary Lou out, but I never really wanted to, um, to take over that position. And I, I believe I was offered a banquet position of some sort and I turned it down. I just didn't want to deal with it. Banqueting is, is not for me. Did they ever have to pull some of you guys? Like, you know, if they have a banquet going on and they need some extra help, is it like anybody want to put a hand up? Anybody want to pop over there for a minute? Oh God. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was always the one to do it admittedly because I would be able to get off the hotline for a hot minute and go do something more interesting, but we would turn out parties of a hundred and like, you know, have every single dish out in 20 minutes, maybe 22 minutes was, I think like Mary Lou's record. It would mean, it was just speed and precision. It was incredible, but it was also like, it was just tedious and it was also very repetitive, but yeah, they would pull people off the hotline, which would also, you know, that also hurts service when, you know, you only have so many line cooks. And then when you have to pull one or two to go up and help, you know, you, you hurt your service down below, but so it's, it's a strategic decision at that point, whether you pull two or one and when you do it and how long they're going to be up there, but they would borrow. Everyone would help each other out. So when you become a sous chef there, what's the biggest change? What's the biggest difficulty for you when you move into that role? Because, you know, you mentioned kind of the language barrier with some of the other people in the kitchen, but you have all these different businesses kind of all operating out of the same kitchen too as well. So I'm sure more of that kind of falls on you. But thinking back to that time, what was kind of the the biggest challenge with moving into a sous chef role there? The biggest challenge was becoming my coworker's boss. You know, I had worked with these guys like literally elbow to elbow for years. They become your brothers because you see them more often than you see your own family. And, uh, and then to one day, you know, uh, you know, the white boys, then now your boss, it's kind of like, it rubs people the wrong way. I think I could confidently say they were all happy for me, but they didn't take me seriously. And also, you know, I give them, I understand that. I wasn't a very stern person in the beginning of like this sous chef position. I didn't really know how to like lay down the hammer. And when I tried, you know, no one would believe me. It's like, oh, Ian is just joking. You know, he's still one of us. He's whatever. And that changed over time. Um, but it also kind of like established my chef style or my management style going forward. I don't rule with an iron fist. I've worked under a lot of chefs who are complete assholes who um, think that they have to be just angry to get a, you know respect or to be authoritative. And that's not the way I necessarily deal with it. In fact, I'm quite the opposite. I'm not going to ask anything of you that I personally would not do. And I just, I don't know. I just don't think being angry just to be angry ever achieves anything. There are moments, certainly, that I, I become angry. You know, even now, 
to earn your respect of your coworkers or your employees is harder and more rewarding than it is to simply be a scary figure who demands things, you know, every day. And I'd like to thank every chef I've ever had, whether you've been the angry asshole or you've been the guy who's earned my respect, but they've shown me that that is the way to approach management. But so, yeah, I think at that moment, once I became the Sioux, that was where I started to learn how I wanted to be a manager. And, um, and the fact that they didn't uh, take me seriously was something that shaped the way I went forward with managing other people. Give me your best Matt Walton story from your time working with him. Oh, my God. Oh, I don't even know. I, rem- I was dating a woman at the time. We wound up at a strip club, and I didn't leave the strip club until like 4 or 5 in the morning. And I was working brunch. At, I think I'm like, my end time was like 8 o'clock. So I don't think I slept that night, but I was still late in. And I remember Matt Walton giving me a bunch of phone calls, like pissed out of his mind, like didn't know why I was late. And I showed up hungover. Like once I explained the situation, like it was like, you know, a knuckle bump, some ibuprofen and a cup of coffee. And like we like moved on, you know, and he's like a personable guy, too. So, um, you know, he could be a hothead. But, you know, at the end of the day, he's a good man. And, and I respected him for that, too. Like it was one of those moments that like I think embodied being a person who like earns the respect of your you know employees and not just being like an authoritative figure. And that was like one way he demonstrated that at that moment was besides like just ripping me a new one, like where the fuck were you? Why were you out so late? How irresponsible of you? It was like, all right, well, like you're here, you're an hour late, but like, let's just get the show on the road. Like here's, you know, here's some ibuprofen and a cup of coffee. Let's, let's do some brunch. You know, we had a, we had a couple moments, but I don't know if I want to care to share all of them, but he's a good guy and we had a lot of fun. There's been some moments we've gone out drinking too, but I think that's like, you know, a common motif in every single restaurant story. Did you like doing brunch? Fuck no. (laughs) God, no. You know, Ray, I'm sure you've got so many people on here who have said that and it's just like. I see like one or two restaurants that are like a brunch restaurant and I just have no idea what is wrong with those people. There's obviously a market for it. So I understand that like that's why you have the incentive to open up a brunch restaurant. But no, I do not personally enjoy brunch. I do it every Sunday morning now, but I only enjoy it because I, I like the food. It's a, little, it's a little easier, a little slower, except for eggs. But then I have the rest of the afternoon off. Other than that, brunch is not necessarily my favorite thing. Do you enjoy brunch as like someone who goes out to brunch? No, like we look at a brunch menu. I would rather see a brunch menu more heavy on the lunch items than on the breakfast items. I don't really eat breakfast too much. Like it'll be like a small thing here or there or whatever. But like going out and getting like an omelet and egg, like that's just not appealing to me. I guess I just feel like you can get that anywhere. So it doesn't really matter. We go to restaurants and stuff like we want to see the stuff that like they're pushing creatively. Like this is the stuff that they're proud to like be putting out there where brunch is kind of like very formulaic. It's okay. We got pancakes, we got eggs, we got bacon, we got sausage. Oh, we got like a sausage McMuffin thing. It's like, I don't care about any of that. Other people love it. And that's like, they live and die by like, oh, I'm like all hungover from, you know, Friday night. I want to go get brunch on Saturday. That's just like. Couldn't be me. I I don't know what that is like, uh, honestly. But yeah, no, not a big brunch fan, but we do brunch at 1808. So. You know, if anybody's interested in brunch, come out and spend some money there. When COVID happens, do you remember like when they tell you the restaurant's closing indefinitely? Because you mentioned like you guys were in a conference room kind of watching, you know, stuff on TV or whatever. But you have the hotel component, too, as well, which heavily influenced probably that whole property shutting down because it wasn't like it was like, hey, we're not even going to have guests here. Like, <laughs> No, that was a huge part of it. You know, we were just waiting from the call from the chain of command. Um, you know, I remember watching Mike DeWine doing press conferences. And God, I remember like 
I should be punished for making this joke. But I remember making a joke with a coworker who worked in the hotel, like about the number of people getting sick. And like, we took a bet on like, you know, how fast it would increase. But, and that just goes to show. And like, you know, I regret that comment so much, but I remember just, it goes to show like how we didn't take it seriously. We didn't know what was going to be coming. And we were all just waiting around nervously. Nobody was coming in the door. We didn't have like foot traffic. Even though we shut down officially, I believe on the 15th, we didn't have a lot of business, you know, for about a full week before that, you know, you had like a lot of people coming out to dinner, but like breakfast, lunch, um, even like early dinner, like it just, it started to slow down and it's because people were becoming scared of it. And, you know, and we didn't know what to do. Like we're starting to cut hours back on people. Like people are, you know, you know, a lot of line cooks were like, Hey, like I need, I still need to make money. And we're like, we just, you know, the business is slowing down. And so it's like a hard conversation to have with them. And, and then when they finally pulled the plug and, you know, it was like official, official, I remember just like going in there for a couple of days afterwards, like cleaning every single dish, um, putting it away. The best part, I guess, is the silver lining. It wasn't even a great part. I just, I got to take home some food to you know, my apartment and I survived like a month and a half off of the food that was left over there. I remember helping put away the, the liquor uh, over in, it's like near the arena district at some like liquor depot. We were like, we returned all of the liquor to storage. Believe me, between the hotel and that yield house, it was just a massive amount of liquor. We spent hours putting it away. Um, I'm not even sure why I was in the liquor area because it's not like my department, but it was just like your management, everybody else just go home. We also wound up cooking off a lot of the food that we like couldn't save. We cooked it all off and uh, we would have a lot of the guys, a lot of the Mexican men and women come in and, you know, get hot meals for themselves for like the first couple of days after we closed down. Um, just because like, you know, there is still a sense of family and community within that uh, restaurant even when something like that's happening or more so because of COVID. And it was really sad because I, you know, I haven't seen some of those guys since that's happened. And, you know, I hope they're doing well. I, I'd like to stop in and say hi every once in a while. But honestly, I think everybody I worked with at the Guildhouse now has like moved on with like maybe the exception of like one individual or two, but that's just the restaurant business. When you wind up going to the Avenue, when they kind of hire some people back and are reopening everything, what's the biggest difference between you know, they're both within the Cameron Mitchell restaurant group, both concepts there. What's the biggest difference from the food perspective? You know, obviously the menus are different, locations different, but just being in the kitchen and the food, what's the biggest difference that you took away from those two properties? God, I mean, the Avenue was so much, I mean, and like, let me just say that I love everybody at the Avenue in Dublin. You know, if any of them listen to this, like they're still like my family, like they're great people. The food was just so much more simple. There were so many less ingredients. There was less, it was just more efficient. There was less food waste. And, you know, for example, at the Guildhouse, we were getting in Amish produce twice a week, if not three times a week delivered. We would get like random fun things in. And uh, the Avenue, uh, it was it was very, you know, financially efficient. It was kind of cut and dry. There were never much changes to the menu. You know, if we ran a special, the special was always the same. The food was fast. It was so fast at 18, or, um, I'm sorry, at uh, the Avenue. The food would come out so quickly compared to the Guild House. You know, the Guild House, it's like, you know, they're taking their time somewhat, but, you know, the avenue was just like banging, coming out. So, and then like the Guild House, you know, for example, they had like a portobello mushroom, a grilled portobello mushroom with like a quinoa salad, shaved radish, mustard vinaigrette, mint, onion, something else in there, and, and a ricotta salada, something like that. I mean, it had like, you know, eight or nine components. And then, you know, uh, the avenue, you know, you have side dishes that are like, it's asparagus on a plate, or you have cream spinach, or it's a baked potato. And that's just like why they can move the food so much faster. Uh, the change from the Guildhouse to the Avenue was like simply 
the food was faster and it was more dialed down in terms of just for the efficiency's sake, which in a creative world is somewhat disheartening to say the least. So when you wind up in Chicago and you wind up working at Boca, how big of a difference is that for somebody that's only worked in Columbus up to that point? And then you go into Chicago, which is like the capital city of the Midwest, right? Mostly you know, still known as kind of a steak and potatoes town, but there are a lot of other concepts. You can find a lot of other cuisines there too as well. It's got the Michelin guide and everything. So how big of a shock is that to your system working in the kitchen at Boca versus where you've worked at prior to that? It was like a polar plunge in the culinary world. It was significant. I was introduced to new concepts that I had never even heard of. And I think that's why I forced myself to go out there. I wanted to be uncomfortable again. I had fallen so comfortable at the avenue that I, I no longer felt inspired and I, I forced myself into that position. And I routinely do this within my life that I force myself into uncomfortable positions for growth purposes. I showed up, everybody has their own personal bane. I'm like, what is a bane? Like, why? What is that? Oh, it's where you put your spoons. Well, why do you have spoons? Oh, it's for plating sauces. Like, what, what kind of sauces are we planting? Why can't I just use a ladle? You know, oh, you use tweezers? You know, oh, you have a yakitori grill? Like, oh, what, what does soigne mean? Oh, you actually say we chef and you're not kidding? Like, you know, it's stuff like that. Um, and just the amount of detail that Boca presented was... It was just, it obviously is next level. And it just, it really, it broke me and then it built me up. And I'm so thankful for everybody out there. We did this like dry aged beef tartare. It would rotate seasonally. But one of them, I remember it was when I first got there, it was a spring tartare and they did asparagus coins. And I had to use a bird's beak knife to take off the leaves on the stalk of each asparagus before I blanched it. If you've ever done that, it takes forever and it is extremely tedious. But it was just like that attention to detail I had never had to, to focus on before was now omnipresent in every single thing I ever did. I remember like the head chef, Lee Wollen, one day he remarked to me, he's like, you need to make sure you cover that Parmesan up because it's going to dry out. I'm like, well, like, it's just like these small things that like you never really think about until you're forced to do it every single day. And um, I mean, like so many incredible people worked there too. And it was just a melting pot of people from across the country, from Texas, from Virginia, from Wisconsin, from Cincinnati, Ohio. I guess back to your original question was, it was quite a change from going to Columbus to Chicago. Nobody took me quite as serious as I hoped they would. You know, I'm, I'm a young man. I've been cooking for going on 10 years at that point. I kind of wanted them to be like, oh yeah, like, you know, welcome to the team, dude. But it was like, oh, you're from Columbus. Like, do you even know your ass from third base? And like, I didn't, like, I really didn't. And, but luckily, like with enough hard work and effort, you can achieve anything you want to. They gave me a shot and they they hired me and I'm, I'm so glad they did. And just like from day one, it was just learning all of these different things. I had never worked like gelatin before or like making liquid gels, raw fish preparation. I think I did that once at the Guild House, but like we would do like a hiramasa or a kampachi crudo every single day on the menu, learning about tasting menus and rotations, about like turning tables and like firing and like holding. And I mean, just the timing of it was like, it was like art. I definitely learned a lot from Boca. There are days I do miss it, but at the same time, I'm kind of glad not to be doing something like that at the moment. So it's a, it's a love-hate relationship. How long were you there at Boca? I was at Boca for a year and like two months, a year and a month, something like that. So you were there for at least one Michelin season then, right? When the guide's coming out? Yep. I have a star on the wall, or at least I helped get a star on that wall. I actually 
took a picture with my ex last time he went there and uh we like took a picture with it because we both felt like we earned that along with the rest of the team but like we earned it and we wanted like a little memory of it so around that time because everybody pretty much knows when the guy's coming out when you get closer and closer to that time do things tighten up in the kitchen do things get a little bit more more tension in the kitchen or is it just kind of everyday business as usual I want to say like I felt a little tighter, but I mean, everyday business as usual was tight. They had two sous chefs and now I believe they have three and then they have a CDC. Plus like one of the things I enjoyed was like everybody kept each other in check. So there was never a day that we were ever lacking. So there wasn't a need to like apply more pressure to service than it already had been. So I don't think when the guide season came around, I don't think anybody really got too uptight about it. I mean, if they did, they kept it well under wraps from me, but they do what they do with excellence at Boca. They're not like doing the most creative things in the world either, but what they do, it's like they do it with precision, finesse, and um, flavor. So, um, you know, it's again, it's like, if it's not broken, don't fix it. And I think that's why they receive a Michelin star like every year for the last, I mean, 15 years or 16 years at this point. They never really fretted about like getting that star. I think it was just like, you know, maintaining that level that they always had the easiest way to ensure receiving a star again was just by like, you know, doing what they know, how they do best, you know, just, just maintaining excellence. And, and you could feel it every time you were there. And then you could feel it every time you went home and you're just exhausted because, you know, you would work such long days. You know, I was used to like, you know, a long shift coming from the restaurant industry in Columbus, but my day would start at uh, 11 AM. You know, I would ride my bike into work and I was scheduled in at one but I would get there by like 1130 or noon because if you didn't get there early, you were late. If you got there on time, you were like late, late, you know, and you would never like receive any like scolding from anyone because you're still on time. But when your coworker next to you is outworking you and they've already been there for an hour and they've done half the prep list and their station's immaculate and you're just getting there and you have to crunch in all of that, you know, prep into a less amount of time, you know, you feel that pressure to, to match up to it. You mentioned just one of the reasons, main reason why you came back to Columbus was just not being able to financially afford to stay in Chicago. So with that aspect, how does the restaurant scene in Chicago even function and work if everybody has to live out way in the suburbs where it's affordable and come in? And that's something that plagues a lot of cities, Vancouver. And we've had people on that talk about that too. It's a similar situation where you have people commuting from 45 minutes to an hour just to get to the restaurant. It's just not sustainable. It's not. And I wish they would fix it. And by they, I mean people in general who run restaurants and pay hourly rates. A woman at Boca would drive like 45 minutes one way to come work for an hourly rate, which is crazy anywhere, but especially in Chicago. I have a good buddy named Alex Cochran who's still out there in uh, Chicago. He's currently working at Bar Kumiko. He's the CDC. But we had a moment where our head chef decided that he was going to like talk to everybody about pay rate because the people weren't very happy about what they were getting paid or they didn't feel like it was just the head chef basically said like, look, like this is how it is. And if you don't like it, you can just get the fuck out. And Alex, like being like the hard ass he is and God bless him for it, you know, didn't just sit down and take it, you know? So he put up a, an argument that was fair and just, he's like, how can you justify paying us like, you know, $14 an hour at a Michelin star restaurant? We know you're making money. Like you can't afford to pay us just a little bit more. Like we know the ins and outs of this business. Um, and that was another, you know, flag that I was like, I, I think I should probably leave. All respect to the CDC and, and the sous chefs, uh, Diego and Wood and Jonathan Doctor. They're all great people. I just don't think Alex and, and Lee Wollen saw eye to eye on 
the pay rate or like I just maybe they were just like two ships passing in the night and they just didn't understand what they were saying to each other. But I think that's like a, a larger issue within the restaurant community is uh, is the pay rate. Like, you know, and I guess ultimately, like in Chicago, the attitude was it's a privilege for you to work here. I'll pay you $10 an hour. I'll pay you $15 an hour, whatever. But like, it's a privilege for you to be here. And if you don't want that privilege, then like, I'll find somebody else. We have people knocking at the door, begging for a job. We would have people come in when I was working there and they would fly in from Vancouver or from Texas. They would drive from Cleveland to do a stage for one day. Like I did that. I flew to, you know, Boca to stage there. In terms of employee rights, I wouldn't say it's necessarily mistreatment, but it's definitely not just. Um, You can afford to pay a little bit more at least like something that's like not crippling in terms of finances. But, you know, it's, it's hard to fight back as a, as an employee when people are literally traveling across the country to come take your job and they'll take it for less money because they want it just that much more than you do. I don't know how to fix that. Uh, I'm not an owner. I look forward to the future in terms of progress. So when you get back and you find the Indeed posting for 1808 and you go and you interview, what's that interview like? Do you cook anything? Is it basically just a conversation? see if philosophies align? It was just a conversation with philosophies aligning. I expected full on to have like a working interview. I brought like my equipment and my knives and everything. And, you know, I think Josh just like wasn't really interested in that. Or I don't know if he was like too busy for it, but we just sat down and he just asked me, you know, like he's already seen my resume. He has like a general idea of who I am. Um, He asked me if I have like a style of cooking, which honestly, I hate that question. I told him like I have some interests, but I think like limiting myself to a style is like not really accurate, at least for who I am as a person. And then I think my favorite part of the interview was like Josh was like, look, like I'm a self-proclaimed asshole. I'm not here to like be anyone's friend, but you know, I'm also here to help you. So I was just, you know, I loved the honesty with him. I like kind of like fell in love with the the attitude of, you know, this is business and I appreciate brutal honesty. So he just told me like, you know, you have power over the menu and go to town. As long as like, you know, you, you please the people who are our customers, you know, you can put on something creative for yourself here and there. And I was like, you know, I, I definitely need the job and I like you. I just accepted it. And I think driving from Chicago for like a 30 minute interview was like enough to prove to him that I was serious about the position too. So yeah, it's quite the time. So he gives you kind of free reign over the menu then. So how do you navigate that knowing that there's stuff that you want to make changes too, right? Like I'm sure you took one look at the menu and you're like, yeah, this, that. But there's also stuff that you wind up finding out like we changed that. Like we're going to have a revolt like with our you know core customer base. So how do you navigate that? And you just hit that nail dead on the head there. Well, you know, I've never really held a head chef position until now. And you can want to do everything you want to do, but ultimately like you, it's a business and you want to please people. So um, I, I don't know. I take the approach of like, Cameron Mitchell from my past where modifications are fine, but ultimately I try to leave a few staple items on the menu. Um, you know, we have these filet medallions with like a bacon balsamic red pepper reduction. It's been on the menu for, you know, 12 years, 15 years. It's like never changed and I'm, I'm not going to touch it. You know, it's, it's a staple. You get a lot of folks that come in. They just want that. I'm not trying to like, you know, my ultimate goal is to not force people to try new things. Do I want them to? Absolutely. But my ultimate goal is to give somebody a nice dining experience and to and to enjoy food and company and you know friends and family. So I would be amiss if I put it upon myself to try to educate every single customer who came through my door. Do I want them to try new things? Absolutely. I I would love for everyone to to have a new experience and to enjoy it, but that's not my position. My position is just to to make good food, to control quality and uh, you know to try to introduce some new ideas into the community that people might find enticing. And like the menu 
changes somewhat with the seasons too, right? Is like the weekly or nightly special, you know, that you guys come out with that little kind of pamphlet. Is that really where you get to be creative? Like that's your space to kind of play with whatever you want? I would say so. I, I've always like kind of like rallied against the, the daily or the weekly special. Like to me, a special is special. Like it should be special, you know? So when I do make something at 1808, like that's what I have in mind is it's like a unique and interesting play on something. I've worked in a lot of places where the special is just like leftover fish that you then, you know, you throw together and you cover in some sauce and then that's, you know, $30, please. I try to make it like if I do run a special, which is not as frequent as it used to be, but when I do it, it needs to be something that's generally like interesting or like a unique experience that's people might enjoy. I feel like just having a special for special sake removes the point of the special. But yeah, I, I find a lot of creativity in in doing little specials here and there. But the menu changes frequently enough that I, I can kind of express myself uh, through those dishes without getting that need to have a special every single day of the week. But we try to do something on the weekends to to bring some people in who might not normally come in. Portion sizes are pretty large at 1808. Has that become kind of like a calling card reputational thing where people just kind of know and expect like when they walk into 1808, like portion sizes are, I would say maybe one and a half times probably what you would get with a normal restaurant. What is a normal restaurant? A chain style restaurant. Like if you took just the plate of a, a chain restaurant, you guys' portion sizes are bigger than that. Like the salads are huge. The salads are pretty large. I, I think it's just like the community has become accustomed to it. And I'm, I'm certainly not a dietitian. We, we are still profitable and, um, and people enjoy it. So I battled that portion size when I first started there. I was bringing a little bit of too much Boca Tino 8, you know, like, you know, you're giving them a quinella puree and then like you get a review from a woman and I'm sure she's a wonderful lady, but she's like, what the hell is this? And I'm like, uh, you know. That makes sense. So it's it's been like a learning curve for sure. You know, I'm you know adjusting from like a tasting menu or like a a normal size kind of like portion restaurant to going to like something like a bistro or like 1808 where it's you know it's a little heavier on the portion size, but because you want people to feel like they're getting value for for their dollar, and that's another constant battle that I feel like we face. Um, I'm not sure if it's just exclusively at 1808. A lot of the customers, and I don't know if it's like anything to do with COVID or not. It's just people when they go out now, they expect like you know they they're looking for that like that value portion size can kind of give it to them. But ultimately, I'm not trying to like stuff them full of food either. I don't know. So it's it's a constant battle of like you know if I don't give you a, this much, like you know, am I going to receive like some pushback, or if I give you too much, like you know, my food cost is going to be cut into. So it's it's always something I'm working on. Now you guys do dine in, carry out curbside pickup i think too right doing all those simultaneously even though you come from you know the guild house and, and stuff like that before but is that just strictly time management you know, knowing what's coming into your kitchen no one needs to go out yeah time management's definitely been a larger factor in 1808 than i thought it would be with the to-go orders and the curbside pickups it doesn't seem to play much of a a role in like disruption of service as much as it did at like say the guild house or even the avenue the avenue was very much we did so many to-go orders at the avenue. It was we had like one person whose like designation was to do to-go orders and like boxing and bagging and writing and whatnot. But eighteen one doesn't seem to have that issue, which is fine. We still do a steady stream of to-go orders, but it's nothing that like disrupts the flow of service. Would I like to see more for sure? Um, but I don't really know how I could manage to do that. I suppose contact our provider of some sort and start pushing our ads a little bit more. But 
is the to-go operation enough to the point where you pay attention, you know, when rolling out a new dish to make sure that like, is this something that if somebody ordered it to go, it would travel decent enough? Um, I would like to say I pay attention to that. There are some dishes though that like, you know, shouldn't be taken to go. And I'm like learning to put my foot down more and more often. It's just like, you know, it's not like just a, a principle of the matter. It's just like a quality thing. Like fragile, delicate greens are going to get steamed in a box, you know, or uh, a creme brulee will, you know, just, it doesn't look great. Like, do you really want to eat just like creme brulee from like a cardboard box? I don't know. So there are some things that like, you know, should probably just be eaten within the restaurant, but a majority of the things we have on the menu are easily made to go. So there's no, there's no real issue with that. I haven't come across that yet. There's a kid's section on the menu. Did that throw you for a loop when you first started? Yeah, it did. But, you know, ultimately, like I said earlier, we're, our goal is to to please everybody who comes through the doors. And I'm of the age where I, I could have a child if I wanted to. And uh, I do not yet, but I'm, uh, I'm empathetic towards the people who do have children. And, you know, they also want to go out and eat and have a good time. And, you know, your children don't necessarily always want to have something off of the regular menu. So we, we try to, like, meet them halfway. And, you know, we offer, like, you know some things for the children but it's it's not like my main focus to be quite honest but it's something that's necessary in my mind and i've actually seen on the news um there are a lot of places that are like starting to like want to ban children from dining in or something like that and i I just don't understand that um i'm not sure if that's your that was your next question or not but uh it's just kind of yeah like children can belong in restaurants i I think that's ridiculous honestly yeah i haven't really seen that but it's definitely it's something you don't realize until you have a kid how few restaurants actually have kids section on the menu or like just the ability to accommodate somebody with a kid. And it doesn't matter if it's kids two or six months or whatever, but you get whittled down to like a handful of places that you can go. And like, we're really conscious of like, no matter how great your kid is, like there's still a ticking time bomb. So it's like, all right, you know, and there's things you can do as a diner, like look at the menu before you get there, kind of know what you're going to order when you sit down. Like your server's not going to be mad because you came in prepared and started firing off what you wanted to order like right away. Like they're not going to be like, oh my God, table 23, like as soon as I tried to help them, like they had everything that they wanted. Like nobody's going to say that. I've never heard that before. And I ask everyone to, to try to prepare a little bit more like that because you sound like the ideal diner with children. Everyone's welcome through the doors of 1808. We're in the hospitality industry and we're here to restore you. Like that is the point of a restaurant, right? You know, if you do have ticking time bombs, um, you know, maybe, you know, plan ahead a little bit and know what you'd like to order. And, you know, you know your children more than we do at the restaurant, certainly. So kind of prepare with that. But I think any restaurant that like decides that they want to like, you know, not allow children to dine with them, you know, I mean, unless you're like your Smith, you know, or your Alinea or your Boca or, or something like that, you know, maybe don't bring your children in there. But that's when you get like a babysitter. But like for like a more casual joint, you know. Like, you know, children should be welcome. I encourage it, honestly. You know, children need to learn how to eat actual food that's not like, you know, fast food or candy or sugar-coated, whatever, you know, garbage. I think that's something that I think is really important, to be quite honest. Uh, You know, getting your children to eat something that's worthwhile and it's nutritious. I think, like, the mainstream media is kind of working towards, like, promoting that health. Again, I'm not a father, so I haven't really been paying attention. But um, I think any parent can do, do a good deed for their child by bringing them to a restaurant that serves actual food. A lot of it has to do with, you know, like you said, you know your own kid, but just take into account everybody else too. You know, you can go to certain restaurants, uh, even if, you know, they're not specifically set up for kids, you know, they don't have a high chair or something. But like, for instance, we went to spec for lunch. We got one of the first lunch reservations because we knew it'd be more empty 
And, you know, you go through your normal progression, but it's like, uh, yeah, like we're going to skip on dessert because like, yeah, we might have like 10 minutes left before like he could potentially lose his mind. And it's fine. And, you know, as long as you take that stuff into account as a diner and you kind of put the onus on yourself, knowing like don't push the boundaries and limits of your kid, be respectful for the other people around you and like go in the off times or go earlier or whatever. You know, I think it works out. I think most people are willing to accommodate, but you you just don't see it that much. And I think that's probably more of an issue with people not having self-awareness, I think, uh, when they have kids too as well. But please don't let your children like run around the restaurant, you know, like if your children can't sit down for like 20 minutes, maybe don't come or I don't know, get them tired before they come out. I'm not sure the best way to approach that, but get to go food to go. Yeah. To go curb order, you know, something like that. So you competed in, I believe, the first chef scrap at uh, Ray Ray's in Granville against Jack Moore. How did that happen? How did you get involved in that? How did that happen? I was working one day and um, James Anderson messaged me on Instagram and was like, hey, are you interested in competing in this? Like, well, let me back up. My sous chef, Carter Gad, and the head chef at Veritas downtown, Dan, decided that they were going to nominate me for the challenge without telling me. Because I guess they like to bust my balls. So, you know, and I'm like not the most social individual. I was like, yeah, sure. Let's, let's do this chef challenge. Like, you know, and apparently like there have been many chefs in front of me who had turned down the offer because they didn't want to do it in front of a live audience or something like that. And I was just like, well, you know, like I grew up in Grenville. Like anyone who shows up is probably like somebody I know. So how bad can that be? And I grew up with James Anderson's stepson, uh, Liam Collins. And uh, so I like would hang out on his farm um, growing up as a kid. And I knew James um, from like a distant time ago. And I was just like, you know, excited to like do something. So um, on a whim, I said yes. And I didn't know anything about Jack Moore, but he's a he's a pretty good guy. The competition was fun. And uh, I was, yeah, I mean, it was it was a thrilling uh, event to, to be a participant in for sure. Was it everything you expected it to be? It was. It was like a little more unorganized than I thought it would be, to be quite frank. At this point, I think I would like to assume that James and company have kind of like got it down to a T now. I'm sure they have because they continue to do them and they have good turnout. Yeah, I was hoping to like, you know, get a tour of the kitchen like maybe a couple days before or have like, you know, some idea of like what they had in like dry storage or, you know, what equipment that they have there. But looking back on it, I think they kept it pretty competitively fair with not telling me anything. Um, I know that Jack is friends with James, so maybe he's seen the kitchen before. But other than that, like, it was a pretty equal playing field. And uh, I had like 30 minutes or less to like, just like scan the kitchen, scan the ingredients and then prepare some ideas. And I, at first I thought I wasn't going to be able to um, kind of like cook in front of all of these people who had shown up. A lot of the folks from my restaurant came out with like a sign and, and all that. And that was, you know, embarrassing and also heartwarming at the same time. But um, I thought I wouldn't be able to cook in front of all these people. And you just kind of turn off the the sound. Like when I cook normally for like any given dinner service, it's you just focus on what needs to be done and nothing more, nothing less. And, but it was like, it was exciting to see like the judges, you know, and Mikey from Mikey's late night slice doing like the MC thing and coming around and like asking me like, what's going on right now, chef. And I was just like, like none of your business. Like, you know, I'm not sure what to say at that moment. Um, I can cook and I can interview what I can't do about the same time. So it was definitely a fun time. Um, I left my jacket there actually. Um, and I never went back to get it. So if it's still hanging on that hook, James, if you're listening to this, maybe I can get that jacket back. But, um, I'll have to swing in and, and catch the next one. I've been meaning to, but I just haven't had the time. 
based on your uh, experience with uh, this first cooking competition, which you won, would you ever consider doing more cooking competitions or are you uh, set to retire with an undefeated record? I would like to do it again. I mean, it's just fun, you know, like we're just out here having a good time. I'm not sure what I would be invited back to the, the Ray Ray's uh, chef scrap. I would do it again. Defend my win, I suppose. I mean, all in all, it's a good time. I don't know if there's any other competitions like that around the area, but I would certainly do it again if I was asked. Do you still do any fermentation at home? Not at home. I don't really have the space, but I've been doing a little fermentation at work here and there just for fun. But it's it's definitely like a, a hobby I've slowed down on, but I haven't stopped completely. I think as you grow older, you, you kind of like priorities change and I've picked up other hobbies, but I, I still like to ferment and I have more space to do it at work than I do here in my apartment. When you do fermentation, what's your goal? Are you trying to just come up with something new or are you trying to just come up just experimenting with different ingredients to see what happens? So I like to do two different routes. I like to kind of experiment with like something that's just like never been done. You know, I don't look at like, I don't look at any books or any recipes or anything like that. It'll just be like, you know, this is something that just came into my mind and like, we're going to see what happens with this. It's also a lot of ideas that like uh, my sous chef or like other staff members will like bring up to me like, what if we did this? And it's like, let's, let's do it, dude. Like that's the fun of like, you know, fermenting or, you know, or whatever you're doing is like, you're just, you're just trying to discover something new. And um, that's really got me into it in the first place. At the same time, there's the other route, which is, this is going to be a functional ingredient in the dish, you know, and I need this to be like done well and executed properly. And, you know, it's more utilitarian than it is just like a creative endeavor. So it really goes both ways. And it just kind of depends on the day on how I'm feeling, uh, if and when I do either one. What's like the weirdest thing you've fermented so far? Um, I did a buttermilk, a burnt rice buttermilk amino acid. So it was like charred sushi rice over like hardwood or like a, a yakitori. And then like you cool that down and you'll soak the grain and then you'll take um, buttermilk and you'll mix it with uh, koji. And you'll essentially let that go for like, I think it was like seven months at room temp or eight months at room temp. And you strain it out and you have like this cheesy, funky kind of like soy sauce almost. It has like some really weird notes. I haven't like found a purpose for it yet, but I like still kind of keep it around just in case like I decide I want to throw it into like a sauce or some kind of soup or something like that. But that's the thing you get when you like do these weird things. It's like, and that's another beautiful thing about it is like you don't have like an end goal. You're just trying to do something that sounds cool at the time, you know. And, and if it's like a flop, it's a flop. You know, how much does like sushi rice cost? You know, it's not a lot. You're not going to break the bank on, uh, you know, a couple cups of buttermilk and some sushi rice. But like if it works and it turns out to be really interesting and it has like an application, it's like, well, you know, that idea is invaluable. And it's more than $5 for the ingredients. I also did like a, uh, was it a chicharron like tonkatsu garam that was something i posted on instagram a while ago that was before the pandemic but i went to that uh it's the ramen place down there at the north market the name is uh slipping by my mind i'm not sure but i wound up like buying some uh tonkatsu um broth from them for their ramen and then i went and bought some um pork belly and like slow braised it and like fried it up and then kind of like turned it into uh, a garam with like some koji and some salt and i fermented that for a year and it's like the best pork soy sauce you've ever had. And uh, I gave some to uh, my ex and I kept some and she cooked it and used it in like a week and just heartbreak. It's like, it took me a year to make that and it was gone in one week. Um, but that's a good sign that she enjoyed it. And, you know, um, I enjoyed it too. And don't think I have any more. I did bring some to Chicago though. And uh, I think I used a lot of it there. 
what's the best thing that's ever come out of one of the fermentations that you've done and like the worst thing that's come out? I follow this uh, Sean Brock recipe for like, it's like a hot sauce that he ferments with Koji. He uses like fresh cayenne peppers and I was able to find like like 10 pounds of fresh cayenne. And like if anyone's ever like tried to find fresh cayenne, it's, it's harder than you can imagine. So I found some fresh cayenne and I fermented that and it's just the most heavenly hot sauce. It's like, it just hits all the notes of like just hot enough, but it's also got like, like that vinegar after you, it, it finishes fermenting. It's got like that, like that fermenting, like kind of like stank to it. And it's got like a little bit of sweetness and like the salt. It's just, and the color is just so vivid and bright. Really, really, really nice. And then God, the worst thing I've ever fermented. It would have to be like, maybe something like at the Guildhouse, we were trying to inoculate quinoa with koji we like let that inoculation kind of like go way too long and it turned into like it was it sporulated it like spored and it became like black and then it started to like mold and like i mean it went it was like this was like over a course of a day and a half so like i'm not sure how this happened so fast but i would say that was probably the worst thing it, it really became pretty gross God, i don't know I, I try not to remember all of the bad things i've fermented because the good ones kind of outweigh the bad You've been in the Columbus restaurant scene for a long time. So how has the you know food and restaurant scene here changed? What do you think still needs to change? Where do you see it headed? That's a great question. I've seen an improvement overall in the scene, in my opinion. I mean, this is obviously all my opinion, but I'm, I'm liking the new independent restaurants. As much as I enjoy Cameron Mitchell, I don't really want to see another one. I think he's got plenty of restaurants around the city. And I think that it can kind of smother you know, creative competition from other smaller independent restaurateurs. I've really enjoyed like seeing like Abishar opening up Joya's and um, Agni is just, is that, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Agni is that brand new one down there on South High. I'm really enjoying um, Bonifacio over in Grandview. That's a great one too. What I'd like to see going forward with Columbus is like the clientele being a little more accepting of like new ideas and new ingredients. I'd like to see like a new, another tasting menu um, like out there other than maybe Veritas and I guess Agni is doing one. Um, for a moment, uh, a tasting menu is like a really great way to like operate a kitchen and it's a great dining experience too. Now, is it something that like you're going to get people in every single night for like a year or two on end without changing it up? No, but if we look at Veritas, like you've seen, like it, it functions, it can, it can be done and at a, at a great profit as well. So I'd like to see like, I don't know, a little more, I can always see more creativity kind of come in like genuine flavors. I'd like to see less, uh, taco places. I don't think we need any more tequilas and taco joints around the corner. You can't go more than like, you know, a mile without running into a uh, overly priced taco place that will remain unnamed. There's like two or three in the city. And then like, I feel like there's a lot of like Southern comfort restaurants in the city as well. that are like, you know, you can do it pretty well, but ultimately like, I think it like kind of prices out. Um, there's like a, a price limit that you can charge for like cornbread and like fried chicken. And it's not like we really need much more of that. I'd like to see more more tasting menu or like just more genuine, like authentic cuisine. You know, like when I go to Bonifacio, I'm sure you've been. It's like these people are like they're from like the Philippines. Like they make delicious food. It's it's genuine. It's not overly priced. And it's just like a great dining experience. It's not also it's not another rooftop bar. Like we're getting so many rooftop bars, too. But I think that's like just like part of like the city growing is like you're going to get those skyscrapers, you're going to get the, the rooftop bars with it. So, you know, I'm not, not trying to sound like a crotchety old man in my critique. I'd like to see more independent restaurants continue to grow, I think is really the ultimate goal in my mind is more independent restaurants serving like, you know, more creative food. I, and I think it's I think it's going in that direction. 
I like to stay away from like large groups and um, rooftop bars and taco joints. Well, you're getting four new Cameron Mitchell restaurants uh, over the course of the, like the next year and a half, I think. So, oh, did I? Oops, uh, I really didn't know that. <laughs> I read about it the other day. There's like uh, there's something going in Easton. They're going to open something downtown. They're going to open something in German Village and then something at Bridge Park. I think the last two are supposed to be like Italian concepts, and I I don't know one of them is supposed to be like a Mediterranean like fine dining or something. Now that stuff could fall through, but right now, as far as I know, there's like four new uh, Cameron Mitchell restaurants scheduled to open um, sometime between now and like 2024. You know, I gotta give the man credit when credit is due. He can. He's definitely a businessman. He knows how to balance the budget and uh, open new restaurants like rabbits. That's all I gotta say about that. What's next for you professionally? I mean, you're up at 1808. You know, do you want to open a restaurant of your own one day? Or, you know, will you possibly, there's going to be a French restaurant within the restaurant group coming up, you know, probably opening sometime in 2024. Is that something that maybe you'd like to throw your hat in the ring for there and move downtown? Like, what's next? I've had conversations with Josh about this French restaurant and my position's not like, you know, set in stone, but I certainly think I'll be moving down there whenever that opens up and it'll be closer to where I live. And like I said earlier in the podcast, like Josh Dalton's the man, like, can he be an asshole? Absolutely. But I, I really like the guy. I, I feel a sense of loyalty to him and I think he does business right. So yeah, I look forward to working with him in the future and, and checking out this French restaurant. Hopefully it'll be a, a nice venture. In terms of opening my own restaurant one day, uh, I certainly, at the moment, I don't think so. Just these last couple of years, I've seen more and more the effort that is required to open and maintain your own restaurant. And it I don't think that like normal people who aren't in the industry have the faintest idea of like what it really, really takes. You know, you don't sleep, you barely eat, you are constantly like focusing on maintaining that business because it's your child, you know, and maybe one day, but certainly not in the future. But if I was to ever open a restaurant, it would be a small little place. And uh it would be mostly for my soul and my heart and not really for my wallet. But, you know, that'll be across that path when I when I come to it. Will we ever see a collaboration between all the, the restaurants in the group, you know, at least from the chefs? I mean, there's you, there's Daniel Veritas, you have Jay over at Spec. I'm not sure who's running the kitchen at Cove, but will there ever be kind of like a, on a night that all the restaurants are closed, like one of them is open for like a special dinner and you guys can all collaborate? Like, will that ever happen? That's a fun idea. You know, I could certainly whisper in that in their ears and we'll we'll see what happens. I've never cooked with Dan, but I've been seen Dan cook and he's seen me. So I would love to like just like get with him and just kind of like brainstorm. I mean, that'd be a fun idea because truly like I love cooking for the sake of cooking. And I think the industry can kind of grind you down. It's like become so repetitive because you're doing the same thing. But I wouldn't mind that. I haven't met Jay yet. Um, but I did eat at Cleaver when he was over at Cleaver. And I want to give a shout out to Jay. The food was delicious. Unfortunately, you had to close Cleaver and that was a shame. But the food at the time when I went was was great. So um, I would love to get together with those guys and see what happens. But if it ever does, I'll let you know. So wrapping up here, we got a few questions uh, that we ask everybody, but we got a few before that. So this question uh, is left behind from our previous guest on the podcast, Chef Bryce Gilmore out of uh, Odd Duck, Barley Swine and Sour Duck Market down in Austin, Texas. He left behind for you. What's your biggest regret since becoming a chef? That's a good question. Well, I think it's not learning how to balance my work life enough. It's taken a toll on relationships and family members. And I think I'm working on that right now. I'm focusing more on like things outside of the kitchen. I'm, I'm balancing it. So I'm, I'm not like neglecting my job, but I'm trying to focus 
more of my free time on things that make me happy as an individual and not as a chef. I think a lot of people, a lot of chefs in this industry, they, you become the job and it really eats away at you because that's like literally all you are, which is not true. You know, you're a person yourself and your job is a chef. So, you know, I've picked up a few hobbies here and there, going out with friends, I'm getting exercise. So I think my biggest regret was like not having work-life balance because it, it definitely harmed some relationships in the past. However, I can't regret it too much because it's made me who I am today. Um, I try not to like loom on regrets simply because it doesn't really fix anything, but action going forward changes things. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? If you had to stop working in the industry right now, what other job would you pick? With the set of skills you currently have, what would you try to do immediately if you were to just drop your knife and walk out right now? Because I always hear a lot of people ask, you know, they always talk about like when they're going to quit the industry or, or how long they've been in it. And, you know, I feel like there's a lot of sectors out there that like get a lot of overlap. You get your marketing and your finance and like you can kind of just like drop it at the you can just stop doing it at drop the hat and and switch it up but i feel like with the restaurant industry it's you're you're pretty much set for life in terms of what you're going to do i guess you could go like do some kind of thing at like restaurant adjacent but so i guess my question is what would you do if you had to drop you know your knife right now and, and find another job this next question comes from one of our listeners they wrote in in your opinion, why does most of the Columbus food media fail to recognize restaurants outside of the 270 loop, such as 1808, Cove, Ghost Rider, Ray Ray's, 1922 on the Square, Novella Astera, etc.? Honestly, I don't know if I agree with that. I follow Spoon Mobs, and you cover all of them and more. I'm not sure what media they're referencing, but I guess if I was just to take a shot at it, it's... I'm assuming print, magazine-type media, uh, I'm guessing. I think it's because it's written by a bunch of college-age students and or people who live in the downtown area who don't have the desire or the knowledge of other places that exist outside of the 270 loop. They just simply don't want to drive out to Johnstown or Delaware to, to try something new, which is funny because if you live in Ohio, you probably own a car and you can get there within you know 30 minutes. I just want to say it's just like the people who are at the magazine writing, like they just don't have a desire to go out there because they live here and they, I don't know. That's a really great question. Also like, you know, you have to understand that like a lot of those places like 1808 and Johnstown, uh, Ghost Rider, they're not like the biggest little places. They're, they're pretty small. I think they might look at it as like, where is the demographic that's reading this? Like, I'm going to get more views if I write about fire down here at the Hilton because it's right in the heart of downtown um, versus writing about, you know, Ghost Rider because you have that much more engagement with a demographic who live in the area, I suppose. I don't know if it's a population thing or, or what, but that's a really good question by the, the listener writing in. I'm, I'm curious if there's ever really a true answer to that. No, I think you might be onto something with the fact that, yeah, if you write about stuff that's located downtown because it's more of a population center or you write about stuff that's in certain suburbs that you, you get more views. Do you guys get a lot of people from like downtown Columbus you know, to come into 1808? We get a fair amount of people coming up from Columbus. I'm actually generally surprised as well. Get a lot of people from Powell and Columbus and uh, the surrounding area, uh, Waldo, Ashley, Marion even. I, I also like to think that part of that's because of Ohio Wesleyan, uh, the university in town. You get a lot of folks coming in from not even like the general area, but like California, New York, Florida um, for the university. They come in and they're looking for somewhere that, you know, doesn't just sell like a hot dog or a burger and you know they'll they'll stop in and they'll grab something to eat at 1808 so the university definitely helps with the demographic and uh we do get people who come up and they they do leave reviews and or comments about you know they had a great time and they're they're happy to find a gem outside of the 270 outer belt 
So this last set of questions, we asked everybody who comes on the podcast, nice compare and contrast across the episodes here. So who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far when you look back on it? Matty Matheson as a celebrity chef, just because he's, it's like crude, but it's like flavorful cooking. It's kind of like that ugly, delicious, same kind of principle where it's like, it's putting priority, priority on the flavor of the food and less on the presentation. And after going to Chicago and seeing all of the, the fancy, the overly tweezered plates, it kind of makes me no longer yearn for that, but more of flavor and satisfaction from the people who are eating it. And then I guess as like a person who I've worked with before, I want to say JP Yakabuchi. He's uh, currently the head chef at Martini downtown. And he's also a, a tenured assistant professor at the Columbus State Community College in terms of their culinary program, I believe. John Paul has influenced me so much in my career. Um, that guy is a caring leader, is really pretty much the one who gave me the idea of to lead with kindness and not like a iron fist and also push me. And like, you know, he would tell me to make a special and I would be like, yeah, chef, like I'm scared. Like, I don't know what to do. And he's like, don't be scared. Just do it. You know, like figure it out. Like don't let the fear seize you up. So yeah, John Paul, uh, if you're listening, thank you so much. You're a great guy. What's one kitchen item. That's not a knife that you can't live without. I'm going to say my, uh, my tongs or I use like some, like, it's like six inch tweezers. I know there's a lot of folks out there who well, make fun of like tweezer boys. And, you know, you can say that till your face turns blue. I'm not talking about like the, the micro tweezers for like tweezing like tangerine lace onto like some, you know, fish. I'm, I'm talking like, you know, I can pick up like pieces of beef or scallops or I can stir soups. I can twirl pasta. I can flip things in hot pans without having to use tongs. They're just like better long fingers that aren't, you know, these giant oversized tongs. Those are like, I think they're slept on. I don't think people use them enough here in Columbus. And I'd like to see that more often. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So, you know, you guys are closed for the day. Person gets stuck at the airport, reaches out to you. Hey, you know, we're stuck here. Where should we go eat? You point them in this direction. Bonifacio, hands down. I, uh, I've gone there a couple times now. And I last ate there with two buddies of mine, um, one from college and one from high school. And you go there and it's just, you know, you get fried chicken skin that's been like smothered in vinegar. You get, you know, uh, eggplant, you get potato um, you get grilled chicken leg, you get pork belly, you have like, it's like a papaya slaw. It's just like all of it. It's like, it's healthy. It's acidic. It's bright. It's fatty. It's salty. They'll serve it to you on a banana leaf. Uh, you eat with your hands. Uh, you know, you smile because you feel like a child and you're, you're eating food with your hands. It's like almost like a no, no, but, but it just makes you feel more connected with like the food that you are truly eating. And like, I don't know, I just, it's a great experience and I would recommend it to anybody. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So place you never traveled to, you still want to go to, place you've never eaten at, but you still want to dine at one day. I want to go to London and there's the Hawksmoor in London. Just like they just do, do steaks really well. I imagine like it's like something similar to like fire uh, downtown, but like just done to the utmost. Um, I'd like to have like a really nice like steakhouse experience at some point. And then did you say travel destination, not for food, just for travel? I'm actually going to go somewhere this summer and I'm not quite sure where I'd like to see the countryside of Paris. I'm not, I don't, or, um, of, uh, France. I don't really want to go to Paris, maybe stop into Paris, but I'd like to see like the true people of France and like, you know, maybe some vineyards and just like the, the slower side of, of Europe, you know, and, or maybe somewhere in like New Zealand, just like the end of the earth, just like see some giant mountains and some beautiful water. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working. There was some guy who came into the Guild house. It was a large party. They were all dining and um, the, the birthday girl's boyfriend decided that he was going to show up and like pull a gun in the middle of the restaurant because he was already drunk and angry. And I'm not really sure what was going on, but this was at like 930 on a Saturday night. You know, we're all just like, what the hell's going on? Uh, so we wound up like, calling the police, but he fled the scene from the restaurant. So we became a crime scene immediately. 
I would say that's one of the crazier things I've seen. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that you know is, you know, pretty unhealthy, but you just can't help yourself. Pork and peanut butter. Both are like something I'm like learning how to not eat so much of, but um, just fat in general, you know, Uh, my family has a history of heart disease. So I'm like really doing my best to like get my exercise daily and to eat right. But uh, there's just like something about like a nice fatty piece of pork or like a peanut butter jelly sandwich that just like really satisfies me. Um, I don't really drink a lot either. So uh, I think it's mostly food. What's the one cookbook you think everybody should own? Professional chef, home chef, doesn't matter. Uh, The Modern Larder. It is like been like such a great book to have on hand um it has like all these different little quick recipes it's not like one of the big names it's not like you know an alinea or noma or a french laundry like coffee book i think all of those are pretty useless in terms of like function either that or six seasons uh by joshua mcfadden i would say that or so the modern letter or six seasons i use them all the time i have read them like cover to cover the modern larder is like my favorite and i'd recommend that to anybody it just has like such interesting recipes and like takes on plates and whatnot favorite dish thing you ever cooked created you know looking back over the course of your career you can kind of point to this dish as almost like your aha moment like you knew you could be a professional chef run a restaurant one day oh fuck i don't even know i've had a really terrible memory and i've made so many that i don't necessarily i did a a scallop dish at the guild house and i would change it a little bit now but i did like a a carrot puree and I, i did like I was just getting into like spherification with like calcium chloride. It was like squidding pearls with and coconut pearls, like black and white, and then uh, a bunch of different like toppings on that plate. It was more like aesthetically pleasing than it was like delicious. But um, I would have to say now it would be something like uh, a recent scallop dish I did. It was I did like a miso carrot puree with like miso sugar, a bunch of other stuff on there. Yeah, it's it's been it's been a hot minute, but I don't know. I don't really necessarily have one that I'm like in love with it just it constantly changes and i think you're like always seeking that next dish you make i'm an anthony bourdain fan not everybody is or was uh, if you were is there a episode or something that uh, you always remember stands out about him if you weren't is there anybody else who's a tv culinary personality uh somebody feeds phil david chang Jacques Pepin, anybody who you kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career so i was never a large bourdain fan you know I, i've read I've like browsed one of his books or two, but Jacques Pepin, I would say, would be like the guy I idolized growing up. Um, I would watch him with my father. I actually own one of his books, but I love the way he cooked. It just, it was with like simplicity and elegance. And like, it was almost lackadaisical where he was just, he was enjoying himself while doing it, has having a good time. There wasn't like that pressure that you see from like Gordon Ramsay, for example, where it's like, go, 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 get this done now, you know? Jack is just like hanging out. He's having a good time. He's welcoming you to his home. Food is there, you know, with him anyway, is to like bring people together. And it's, it's nourishment. It's not just an accolade, you know, that you see on like a lot of like modern television shows. And, you know, just as someone who works professionally, you, I already get that pressure. You know, you get that pressure from, from like, you know, maintaining speed and performance and just seeing Jacques Pepin cook. It was just, you know, it was it's like Bob Ross if he was to like hold a knife, you know. So I really I enjoyed watching him quite a lot. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug everything. Um, well, you know, you can find me on Instagram at just I guess search my name. Uh, I'm not sure Ian Walker one seven five seven. But I'm I'm trying to stay off social media as much as possible, except for you. I'll I'll, I'll stay on there for you. Um, other than that, you can find me at eighteen oh eight American Bistro on any given day, except for Mondays and Tuesdays. And other than that, uh, I'm just around town. So you know, if anybody ever wants to like grab a bite to eat and just talk about the industry, I'm I'm more than down to do so.
and they're open for brunch on the weekends, but during the week, are you guys Tuesday through Saturday for dinner? Uh, we're Wednesday through Saturday for dinner uh, at 5 o'clock every day. Reservations are encouraged just because it does fill up uh, sometimes pretty fast, especially at the bar. They are they are encouraged, but they're uh, not required. And then uh, I think it's 1808 Bistro and then also the bar at the Bistro accounts too as well. Social media and Instagram to follow. But, you know, we've been there due for a return trip and there in a, a couple months. But um, last time we were there, you know, delicious food, you know, bigger portions than, you know, we're used to and, and expect, but in a good way. I think I got uh, some sort of fish special that you guys had. I know we got like the beignets that you guys have on the dessert menu at the end too as well. But um, yeah, always good food. It's not too far away from us. We're over in Dublin. So in places that have, uh, you know, kids menu or accommodate kids or like we talked about kind of few and far between around town. So, you know, any place that we don't have to get a sitter for, but still has delicious food, uh, we're always down to stop in. So I'm sure we'll be seeing you soon. Absolutely. I welcome you. Please stop by. A big thanks again to Ann for taking some time out of his evening, coming on the podcast, chatting about his career and working at 1808, how he wound up there and where he sees himself headed, all that stuff. Again, you can follow him on Instagram, ian.walker.c. You can also follow the restaurant at 1808bistro and at bar underscore at the underscore bistro are the two accounts for 1808. So check those out. If you haven't been, you can make reservations through Open Table or through their website. They do brunch on the weekends, and then they're open for dinner. I think it's like 5 to 10, 2 during the week, and then obviously on the weekend, they're Saturday too. It's delicious food. It's a great place to go if you have young kids too as well. They have a you know small kids menu there. You know, it's not like you're going to be disrupting anybody's dinner or anything like that. You know, it's all about just kind of maintaining and making sure your kids are well-behaved, you know, not running through the restaurant or anything, but they can accommodate all that stuff. The portions are large. I mean, the salads, I feel like, you know, are for two people when they come out for one. And they do specials too as well. So they always got something kind of new in the works. And Ian's always kind of putting some out that uh, he had up his sleeve. So it's always kind of cool to see new stuff kind of rotate through. Then the menu changes too as well. But follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Follow us on the podcast apps, whatever one that you use too as well. Just follow the show. And also check out the website, spoonmob.com. New episodes hit on Thursdays, 1 a.m. is the release. And then the mini update episodes that are kind of running right now, like bi-weekly, like every other week, those come out on Tuesdays at 1 a.m. So we had one with Silas Caton over at The Locks. He's got Sabo Sauce. So he came back on to talk about that, the taco pop-up. Lauren Gay, who is over at Sueño and Tender Mercy in Dayton, she's going to be opening up her own wine shop. So she came back on to chat about how that process is going. And then we got a few others in the works too as well from previous guests. Uh, some are recorded, some are scheduled. Always an open invitation for anybody to come back on who's come on initially. Um, you know, it's our way to kind of help support them. You know, we try and patron their business as much as possible, but also whenever they have a career update, you know, we want them to come back on and share it with the people so they kind of know what's going on and where they can find them and, you know, check out some cool new stuff that maybe they didn't know about or missed in a press release or something like that. Because usually there's like an initial wave of press release, you know, one or two weeks and then it just kind of dies off uh, here in Columbus. So I think that's for most places, but it just kind of dies off after that. And it's like, well, if you missed that initial wave, you might not have known about something that was happening until you discover it randomly on your own or something like that. So that's kind of why we do it. But um, that is it for this week. We will have a mini update episode for you guys next week on Tuesday. So keep an eye out for that. But as always, if you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued support and listenership and continue to help spread the word. Uh, if you wind up at one of these restaurants or wine bars or businesses or whatever, 
just let them know that you heard their episode on the Spoon Mob podcast so they know that it was worth their time. Uh, it's reached the right people. People have heard about kind of their story and are interested in what they're doing. Um, it always makes everybody kind of feel good when they get that feedback and knowing that, okay, I did this podcast and it reached the the people that I was trying to reach and, you know, we're kind of building our following community and everything. So appreciate everybody listening and we will talk to you guys next week on Tuesday.